Good evening, everyone. I'm Judy Cooper. I coordinate the public programs here at the Pratt Library. I'm delighted to see all of you here this evening. This is a, a special Baltimore Beer Week edition of our writers, ongoing Writers Live series. And um, I just wanted to mention to you that if you, we'd like to see you back again. We have lots of great stuff coming up in November and December. And our new um, calendar is on the table back there, so please pick one up. You can also um, find out what's going on on our website, prattlibrary.org. Um, I'm delighted to have my uh, friend and neighbor writer, Chris Corbett, here. He's going to introduce his friend and the writer, our writer of the e evening, um, uh, Rob Kasser. So, Chris. Thank you very much. Um, I, uh, I promised uh, uh, Rob uh, Casper uh, that I would not embarrass him or, or any members of his family or the delegation from Kansas that is also here this evening or say anything that might impede the sale of the book. And that, that pretty much eliminates uh, my in introduction. But I'm, I'm, I imagine that most of you know Rob Casper from his many years at the Baltimore Sun, where his byline was uh, a, a beloved byline, and uh, he retired last year. You may know him as uh, the uh, writer of The Happy Eater and of Saturday's Hero, among other things. He was long a reporter at the Sun and long an editorial writer, and uh, he has not wasted his time in his retirement. He uh, he set right down to produce Baltimore Beer, a satisfying history of Charm City Brewing. I, I would say that this is the most important event for Baltimore beer drinkers since the Volstead Act <laughs> went under the bridge. And uh, I, I will waste little time uh, in bringing him on except to tell you that he is a Kansan, a state that is frequently dry. But he has moved east all of his life and, and spent much of it among us. And um, he is also a graduate of the University of Kansas and a graduate of Northwestern University. And a, a, a much uh, uh, honored uh, columnist and writer at the, in his many years at The Sun. Uh, I would tell you that Rob Casper has performed a near holy service in the production of this book. I think no Baltimore home is complete without it. I would urge you to buy this book. I would urge you to satisfy your Christmas shopping needs this evening and place it in your home next to the Bible. I, and give it, give it, if you would, to those who might be living in darkness. This is a city with a long history of uh, beer, and I'd like to let Rob Casper tell you about it. Thanks very much. Kiss the stone, as the Irish said. <laughs> that would be the, Blar the Blarney stone. Well, thank you very much, Chris. And thank you all for coming out this evening. Um, and uh, I thank my colleague, Joe Trabert, for coming on. We're, we have a, a two-part. This is a twofer. You know, you go to a bar, you get a twofer. This is a twofer. Uh, I'm going to talk quickly about the history of Baltimore beer. And then uh, Joe is going to tell stories and tell us all about these various glassware and his, uh, just a small, small portion of his ample beer can collection. Joe is a, a, a very good and very thorough uh, beer can collector. He told me once he used to go to, uh, 
was it service stations in Virginia that you'd go to? And because in Virginia, for some reason, they introduced a lot of uh, trial beer can, beer in Virginia and the beer cans, and they would sell it to service stations. And so uh, beer can collectors like to go to old service stations and dig through the rubble to find behind them because guys would just toss them, right? Yeah. Uh, well, I thank you all for coming this evening. I, my task tonight is to cram uh, several hundred years of Baltimore brewing history into about 10 or 15 minutes, um, which is, I think, roughly the equivalent of tasting about 30 or 40 Oktoberfest beers in an hour or two. And I've done that. Um, <laughs> and uh, I, I can tell you that uh, the details get a little fuzzy. <laughs> Um, but this evening, you, I, uh, you'll be happy to know there will be no quiz at the end. And sadly, there are no samples here, but uh, maybe we can uh, find that after the fact. To the, uh, why I started writing about the history of Baltimore beer, I found that what I was really doing was writing about the social history of the city because many of the themes that came through in writing about brewery were actually things that were right in the central aspect of being a Baltimorean. And one of those is family. Family is very important uh, in Baltimore. When I moved here in 1978, I was told never say anything bad about anybody in a room because somebody in that room is probably related to them. <laughs> and indeed, that has proved to be the case. Um, and in, in the history of Baltimore Brewing is one dominated by families from the very beginning, uh, the Barnetses, the uh, Baron Schmitz, um, the Wiesners, right up to the Hofburgers, the Gunthers, and, current, and the current wave of microbrewers, Hugh Sisson and the fellows at Brewers Art, all have many uh, f strong family ties. The other theme that I think is right to the center of Baltimore life that is also uh, common in uh, brewing history is loyalty. Baltimore, I think, is absurdly loyal, very strong. Uh, now, it takes a while to warm up to you. Uh, when I first moved into Bolton Hill in 1978, I had a neighbor, Mary Pauling Martin. She's now gone to the Saints. And she said she didn't talk to anybody who moved in for two years uh, because she thought they just might move on. But once Baltimore latches onto you, they stick to you like a sticky bun. So the first, bre the first uh, brewery in Baltimore, commercial brewery, it was 1748. John Barnett's, he put it right down here where the uh, Morse mechanic is. I think it's still there, although they're trying to talk about knocking that down. And the interesting thing about him is that he was, of course, German, as many of uh, the brewers lately uh, uh, later on were, and he was also a member of the Zion Lutheran Church, a founding member of the Zion Lutheran Church, which is the church right behind City Hall, which still is in operation, still has much memorabilia about their early brewers, and has a great beer hall upstairs, so I encourage you to visit it at any, at any occasion. The other thing interesting about Barnett's was that he was a commuter. He lived in York, Pennsylvania, and uh, had a farm there, and as well as in Baltimore, and he seemed to prefer York to Baltimore. I don't know why, but he soon handed off his uh, brewery to his son, Daniel. Now, they were, as I said, right down by the old Morris mechanic, 
And many of the brewers I found in my research had breweries right next to the Jones Falls. And I thought, oh, isn't that nice? They're using the waters of the Jones Falls to brew the beer. No. They were using the waters of the Jones Falls to dump their spoil into the, into the, uh, into the water. Early polluters, I guess. Many, many of the breweries were uh, located down in the Jones Falls, and in 1784, Baltimore had the largest brewery in the country, the Peters Brewery, at Lombard and Falls. And I don't know if they made great beer or not, but the father-in-law of the brewer ran for mayor and was elected in Baltimore for 12 years, so I think must, something must have been going right there. Of course, right nearby was, uh, a few years later, Mary Pickersgill uh, sewed the flag that made uh, that flew, would fly over Fort McHenry and make Baltimore proud. And so, any, and the, the reason is that uh, she had a small row house there, and, and the flag was too big to roll out into her house. And so she uh, asked for permission from the brewer to come there at night and sew the flag, and the brewer uh, obliged, and Mary sewed the flag, and it flew over uh, Fort McHenry, and the national anthem was written. And so every time we sing our national anthem, you should thank Baltimore, a Baltimore brewer. <laughs> now, Germ there was a vast German migration into the in Baltimore in the 1800s and right to the turn of the centuries. And they came from primarily from Germany for, for two reasons. The first reason was if you were a young man in Germany at the time and you weren't connected to nobility, there was a real good chance you're going to be grabbed and thrown in the army against your will. And the second reason we had so many brewers here was there was a steamship line called the German Lloyd Line that came from Hamburg right to the docks of, of Baltimore. And many, many uh, young men and women got off the... Uh, off the boat there, including a man named Yingling, who got off the boat. And uh, his family, of course, now the Yingling is a, the oldest continuous uh, brewery, operated brewery in the United States in Pottsville, Pennsylvania. But his family told me the reason they thought their great-grandfather ended up there was that he, being a German, brewed beer in the mountains. And he brewed that because there uh, they made lager, and to make lager you need uh, chill, and in those days there weren't, wasn't refrigeration, so they brewed the beer and stored it in the mountains. And secondly, when you store it in the mountains, it's easy, the gravity flow works better. So they figured that he got off the boat in Baltimore and just kept walking until he got to a mountain, and that's why he's in Pottsville, PA, <laughs> and not Baltimore, Maryland. Now, there were two hot spots of, of uh, brewing in Baltimore at this time. One was Brewer's Row, which is over on Hillen and Gay Street, and now the, the landmark you wouldn't recognize is the Old American Brewery, which sits there. It's very tall. It is a magnificent structure, Bavarian architecture a la mode, and um, it's been restored by a nonprofit, and they are giving tours of it, I, tours of it this weekend, as a matter of fact, uh, and also during the year. I highly recommend uh, a tour. It is a magnificent structure, and upstairs on the very top where they have the brewer's room, uh, which is where they would take and entertain clients, it's just magnificent, and you can see the entire city. Now, the second, and in addition, the other interesting thing about the Germans is they didn't just bring their beer, they brought their culture. 
And for instance, over on Brewer's Row, there were uh, many beer gardens. And these were large operations which had amusements such as bowling alleys, dancing halls, um, and, and entertainments for the children. And it wouldn't be uncommon for a family to go there and spend the day, and the mother and the children would be in the amusement park, and the men would go across the street and have a schutzen, a shooting competition, and the target practice. And once a year, the man who was uh, deemed the best shot was called king of the schutzen, and he got to name uh, the young lady who would be the queen of the schutzen, usually his daughter. Now, we still have shootings in the park, uh, <laughs> but it's slightly different. Um, and another uh, uh, former beer garden site is on North Avenue at Hillen, where the old Sears used to be. It's now a city court. And that is a, uh, there was an area there called Darley Park. And Darley Park had a, a brewery, and we have photographs in the book of its, uh, some of its posters, and it uh, too also made, um, had an amusement park there. And a fellow from who used to work uh, down at the Sun named Minken used to ride his trolley car up there to Darley Park and have a beer and a sausage and then come back, I guess, to Center and Calvert or wherever to, to type away. Now, the other hot spot was Brewer's Hill, of course, which is over in East Baltimore, high on a hill, which is uh, where the Natty Bow Tower is now. And again, I highly recommend a tour of that. There's one this weekend, although it's supposed to be on Sunday when we may be getting the storm of the century. Um, but it, too, is a magnificent structure, uh, has been renovated now with office spaces and uh, various uses, and has the, the balcony of the Natty Bow Tower, which is a very large uh, operation structure. It's about twice the size of this room. You can see all through, all up and down the harbor, and you go around the other side, you can see the Towson. You get a really strong feeling of the power and magnificence that once was industrial Baltimore. Now, hard to believe that there actually could be a situation in which there were too many breweries in Baltimore, but that actually was the case. At one point around the time, the turn of the century, an estimated 32 to 40 breweries. And many of them were small. For instance, over in East Baltimore, you know, often you see homes would have a, a window that opens right from uh, the basement, right onto street level. Well, the, what was happening there in some cases was the brewer would brew the beer in the basement and then dish, sell it right through the front window there. But so we had all these breweries, and uh, it was decided in 1899 that. Uh, the time had come to merge, and so all the brewers got together and said, let's form a co-op, all for one and one for all, and we won't be competing against each other so much. And so they had 17 breweries merged into one, into the Maryland Brewing Company, and that lasted about three years. And then they had another attempt at merger, the Gottlieb, Bar uh, Baron Schmidt, and Strauss in 1901. And it, it, the classic case of everybody saying they're all going to be worked together, but as soon as at any opportunity, they would uh, turn their back on one another. For instance, Mr. Gunther, who was then the head of one of these trusts, uh, and was telling everybody, you have to make uh, beer all for one and one for all. His son opened a brewery right across the street from his brewery, and all the members of the trust said, what's going on here? And Mr. Gunther said, I don't know. I don't have any idea. So the brewery trust failed. But what really leveled Baltimore brewing was prohibition. 
the horror, as Mr. Mencken called it. Um, now, it is true that Baltimore was not uh, enthusiastic and Maryland was not enthusiastic about enforcing this federal law. Um, and so, and, and so much so that Hamilton Owen, an editorial writer at the Sun, dubbed it the free state because, of course, nobody was paid to enforce it other than the feds. Uh, and at the same time, uh, apparently you could get, it was pretty easy to get a drink in Baltimore. Uh, Mr. Mencken says he advised visitors to the city, if you need a drink or looking for someplace to find a drink, ask a policeman. <laughs> and at one point he wrote F. Scott Fitzgerald and said, Baltimore is awash or knee deep in good beer. I begin to believe in prayer. But nonetheless, uh, prohibition took its toll and brewery after brewery folded. They tried to stay in business by a variety of ways. Some made malt, which was um, basically a, a major ingredient in beer, but was also sold as a medicinal uh, product. And it was true that if you went and bought some uh, portion of malt, some places would give you instructions to tell you if you used a certain ingredient this way and a certain ingredient that way and did something in your bathtub, you might end up with something close to beer. And the other way they tried to make money was uh, ice because uh, ice was still, uh, refrigeration was still relatively new at the time and breweries were big in that area. And then, of course, some of the um, breweries continued to make buzzless beer which would be or that would have to be one, less than one-half of 1% 1 alcohol. And it apparently was pretty terrible stuff. So after, um, after the war, after, um, after Prohibition, the big, the big breweries that emerged were Gunther, Arrow, who made, or Globe, who made Arrow beer, American, National, and Free State. And then began this boom air time for Baltimore uh, breweries. Especially the two big boys were Gunther and National, and they dominated the market. That National at one point had 60%, 6-0% of the beer market in Baltimore. Gunther was not far behind. And they, all of the breweries, Gunther, American, uh, National, worked to get, bring the Baltimore Orioles to town and to keep the Colts, who were thinking about moving, leaving, from leaving. And I, you can find, uh, for instance, in the Gunther um, uh, employee newsletters, you could check, they were encouraging everybody to buy tickets to the, uh, to season tickets to the Colts and Orioles, and they would check it off right on your paycheck. $2.50, you got a ticket to a Colt game. So now I don't think you could get a peanut for $2.50. <laughs> And the breweries hired the announcers who did the games. So Chuck Thompson, for instance, was hired not by the Baltimore Orioles, but by Jerry Hofberger and National Brewing Company. And Chuck told me, and we had a wonderful session with him before he passed on, that he went, when he went down to uh, see Jerry Hofberger to see about broadcasting for the Orioles, he didn't think he'd get the job because he had been broadcasting, he had been a Gunther man and, and broadcast for Gunther in prior years. But Jerry Hofberger shook his hand, said, you're the man, and they stayed there for some 30 years. Now Chuck also told me that the hardest thing he had to do as an announcer 
was pour the beer in the in-between innings commercials. This was in the early days of television. He said, we could have stomped the Yankees. We could have won a doubleheader. But unless that foam came right up perfectly at the top of the glass, it was a bad day in the booth. (laughs) And then he said, and then I discovered the miracle of salt. He said, you put a little salt in the bottom of the glass, the foam comes right up. So he thought that was a, a great breakthrough in broadcasting. Now, Gunther had Ernie Harwell, another uh, noted announcer. And when the Gunther team, uh, when the Gunther beer sponsored the Colts, the announcer was told at every good extra point or field goal, he had to say, it is good as Gunther's. (laughs) And American beer didn't slag off either. They had some interesting promotions. Uh, One was they dressed, uh, a woman dressed as an American Indian and went around and danced at various, uh, perf- at various functions. And now, she was not a Native American. She was actually a ballet teacher at uh, Goucher and at Peabody and was married to a federal judge. The other interesting promotion of American is that they would tag rockfish and put them in the, in the bay, and if somebody caught them, they would get a lot of money, including one diamond gem was worth 10 thousand dollars. And sure enough, one year a guy caught Diamond Jim. And there was great uh, celebration in the press. But the gentleman who caught it a year later decided that he didn't have to pay, shouldn't have to pay federal taxes on this, that it was a gift from God. Uh, <laughs> and the federal judge heard that case and said, boy, that's interesting. Pay the money. So, now, there was one other announcer in Baltimore, a sports announcer, who was hired by, um, by a brewery. And he was an Evening Sun reporter named Jim McManus. And he broadcast the first television broadcast in Baltimore. It was on Channel 2, which was then owned by the, the Sun. And he was reporting about the races down in Laurel and just gave the, the um, results and sort of, and when he was stalling for time, actually sang a few tunes. And uh, Mencken was still on the sun at the time, and uh, cryptic as always, or critical as always, and said, this young man doesn't know what he's doing. Uh, he, he doesn't have much of a, a future. Well, that young man was Jim McKay, and he went on to uh, become the... Uh, perhaps the best, uh, one of the best uh, sports broadcasters in America. I sent a copy of the book to his son, um, who works in, uh, of course, at CBS now, runs, runs CBS, I guess. And he sent back a very nice note saying his father was always very proud of his work for National Beer and is very proud of, uh, to be a Baltimorean. Well, despite all this dominance, despite the fact that um, you know, there was Bailey Goss and dialing for dollars, and everywhere you turned in Baltimore, there was National or Gunther. Nonetheless, the pressures of the economy came into effect. Baltimore breweries, as they did in many other cities. The larger breweries in St. Louis and in Milwaukee decided that they could take on uh, the breweries in smaller towns. And, and smaller operations. And, they, and so the beer wars began, and basically the big boys won. And they won, I think, for a variety of reasons. One is that 
Beer used to be, like bread, was only, you could only sell a certain distance from where it was made. But as technology improved and bottling and canning improved, it became possible to ship a beer from Milwaukee to St. Louis, from St. to Baltimore, from St. Louis to Baltimore. The other thing was that uh, the interstate highway system made it much easier to and much more economical to ship great distances. And finally, there was this thing called national television, which came in. And all of a sudden, national uh, beer, like a Falstaff beer, could could from St. Louis could uh, advertise on the game of the week, the baseball game of the week, and people in Baltimore would start buying the beer. So the pressure was on to sell. And in 1959, Ham's Beer bought the Gunther Brewery, which is right behind the old uh, National Brewery. And there was a a, a, a Landmark moment in Baltimore cultural history because Hams brought in the Dancing Bear, an animated Dancing Bear commercial for Hams, the land of sky blue waters. And the people at National looked at that and thought, we can do one better. And boy, they did. They went out to California and got some of the same animators, some of the same um, choreographers, and hired people like uh, Candy Candino, to do the voices and created the Land of Pleasant Living, an animated beer, uh, series of animated beer commercials that blended in, in a very clever way, the history of, of Baltimore with jingles. And some people can still today finish that jingle of national beer, national beer, I'll tell you the story of national beer. And while we're at it, I'm proud to say it's brewed on the shores of Chesapeake Bay. And Hams also made a really dumb move. When they came in, they threw out all the beer that was in the old Gunther Brewery. They said it wasn't any good. Now this, you can imagine how this set with Baltimoreans. They thought, what do you, what do you mean? And they also, the, brewer, the, didn't, the, the brewery workers didn't like it. They said they put a curse on the brewery. And sure enough, uh, uh, that year there was a bad fire in which uh, two brewery workers uh, were injured and one was killed. And then there's the case, perhaps apocryphal, of the train load of Ham's beer that was coming from Minneapolis to Baltimore in the winter, and it froze. So what did they do? Did they, would they send the train back to Minneapolis, or would they send it to Baltimore? They sent it to Baltimore. And the Baltimore beer drinkers took a sip and said, never more, to Hams. <laughs> so, and Hams uh, only lasted a few years, and then it was sold to, sold to F&M Schaefer. Um, Schaefer is the one beer to have when you're having more than one. And there was a very large operation there, about a, mil- uh, about a million barrels, but it, too, failed. And in 1975, National merged with Carling and moved from East Baltimore to what was called the Beltway Plant, on 695 and near the Baltimore-Washington Parkway. And then a few years later, in 1979, Heilman bought that operation, and National became just one of the many beers of Heilman. And in 1996, Strohs bought the operation and closed the plant. So we were without beer, good local beer for a while, and to the rescue came the craft brewers. And the first was a Brit, of course, the Brits. My, uh, 
the British Brewing Company. Steve Parks and Craig Stewart Paul, two young men from Britain, had read about the market here and thought that what they'd do is come here and brew an ale and it would sell uh, just like hotcakes. Well, they were right. They came here and they located in that mecca of brewing uh, uh, in industry, uh, Glen Burnie, and uh, made their first batch of beer, but they made one serious miscalculation, and that was they didn't figure out how hot it was in, Mar in Maryland summers compared to the summers in England. And so their yeast came over. They brought their yeast over from England, and it met the Maryland humidity, and it went crazy. So they had foamy beer for a long time. But eventually, they solved that problem and um, began bottling their own beer. And then in 1989, Hugh Sisson decided not to uh, pursue a career in the, as a, an actor and instead uh, took over his family's operation and down on Cross Street, in South Baltimore, and with some work in the legislature, opened the first microbrewery in Maryland. And that was an historic event. Um, people from beer drinkers from all around the state came in and had these strange things called beer dinners, where you matched beer with food. Nobody had heard of that before. And many of the uh, initial um, and eventual customers of Sissons went on to open brewery operations throughout the state. In 1993, Oliver's opened right down across the street from the Baltimore Convention Center, still there today. It's called the Pratt Street Ale House and still offers cask-conditioned ales. In other words, stuff at room temperature. Now, those Brits love that. It's good beer. And then in 1996, there was a great commotion right up here on Charles Street, which uh, when uh, the construction uh, crews were moving the front of the building not far from the Belvedere Hotel, they had to take the windows out to get in these tanks, and, it all, and they had to remove an elevator in the back, but it all worked, and that is how the brewer's art began making Belgian beer, some of the best uh, Belgian beer in the city right now. And then in 2006, Flying Dog, which was in Colorado in the American West, where, brew, where uh, craft beer was supposedly king, decided they were going to leave Colorado and come to Frederick, Maryland. And because both because they got a great deal on the brewery there in Frederick and also because this is where the craft beer market was. So now we're having a boom of craft brewery in Baltimore. We have Union Brewery, which opened down in Clipper Mill uh, not long ago. If you want to know where it is, when you, come, when you drive south on the Jones Falls and you get stuck in traffic and the Pepsi sign is on your left, it's right there on your right, right down there. Sadly, they don't deliver to the, to the expressway. There's Monocacy Brewing at Frederick, which is now bottling. There's Evo, or Evolution, in Salisbury, which opened a brand new plant there. They were right above uh, the Maryland, Delaware, uh, Maryland line in Delaware, and they closed, uh, they moved to a larger operation, and the guys that moved into the old uh, Evo plant were surfers. And they, uh, surfers say that the best wave is always the third wave, I guess, so they're calling their brewery the third wave. And in Peabody Heights, the fellow that brews Raven Beer um, has just uh, purchased a building up in uh, Waverly and will again begin bottling his beer there. In, pa in the years past, he has had uh, Hugh Sisson bottle it for him at Heavy Seas. And just, uh, I guess, this weekend, Gordon Biersch is operating down, uh, is opening a new place on Lancaster Street in the Harbor East 
um, a, a brewery operation there. And then, of course, we have our gypsy brewer uh, in East Baltimore, who is one of the best in the nation. So I'm not sure what the future of Baltimore craft brewing is. You know, it, there might be a consolidation coming the way they did in years past. Hard for me to believe that there are too many breweries in this town. But I encourage you to go out there and find out for yourself. Thank you very much. So, Joe, are you, you're on. Joe Trabert is my collaborator and for many years ran a tavern in Turkey Joe's down in Fells Point and is a, an avid collector. Now, he said there were going to be no questions. <laughs> I'm going to give you lots of questions. First of all, let's see if, if anybody knows what this is. It's used in a bar. Does anybody know what it is? What? This is close to foam off the top. Of it's it. a foam scraper. That's exactly right. They would go like this to take the foam off the top. Why don't they do it anymore? Because it's unhealthy. <laughs> when I started in the beer business, somebody gave me some cans, but I want to tell you about, I have never spent more than $25 on any item in my collection. This thing I paid $25 for. This is my wife over here to the right. We were, we were down at Bell's Point, and this was in a liquor store at $25. And I wanted it so bad that I paid $25. The only thing I've ever paid that much. The day before, I was at a thrift store, and this was a dollar. $25, and a dollar is how much? $26. Dollar cost averaging? $13. That's all I paid for this. Does anybody know what these are called? Growler. Who said that? That's a growler. And I have no reason to know. Do you know? Well, the theory is that if they go, when, you, when they went across the top uh, bar, which was often 10, the top of the 10, and it was empty, it would make a growling noise. Huh. Now, <laughs> I grew up in the, the beer capital of the world, Arbutus and Hatbrook. It's really beer country. But we moved to Wilkins Avenue. There was a bar there, Pinkies, on the corner of Wilkins and Brunswick. And people would take this grabber down to Pinkies, women in the back door, knock on the back door. Take the, the growler in, get it filled. But women in West Baltimore are a lot slicker than most people. They could take butter and put it on the inside of this mm -hmm. thing. What happens? The beer goes up. What happens when it hits the butter? It flattens out. There's no foam. So they got beer right up to the top. <laughs> <laughs> now, I started in a bar, those points, and a guy came in. I had two of these. Two of these and two of these in my bar. And a guy came in about a week after or so. He said, I'd love to get one, one set of those cans from I said, what do you want from me? He said, a hundred beer cans. Didn't take much for me to say yes. He went home that day, that night really, and bought and brought to him 100 beer cans that started my beer can collection. Now you notice, these are display cans, as they're called. <coughs> I also belong to the BCCA. Now, it's called the Beer King Collectors of America. They got another name, but I don't know. And these are the books that, if you ever want to know about cans, 
every beer can you ever want to see. These are flat tops, and these are cone. Here's a cone top. What does it look like? Several things. It looks like a, a oil can. Nobody bought a motor oil can, right? This can here is a two-piece can, all right? There's the bottom, and this piece here was extruded metal, and guess where it was extruded? Crown cork and seal, and the crown cork and seal. They would put a crown on this, which is what we call a top, and they would extrude these cans and soak them up. Here is a regular cone top, three piece, bottom, the top, and here's the top. There are three pieces to this, and one of these books is about that. Now, here's a can that has directions on how to open a beer can. <laughs> 1934, when these came out, nobody knew how to open a beer can. And nobody knew that they had these, which are called church keys. Church key, who said that? <laughs> church keys, right? That's what it's called, a church key. And you can see where somebody used the church key to open. These are very collectible. And uh, this one has the top there, and it also opened a bottle. When I was in the Army, the saving our country in 1957, in Columbia, South Carolina, this is what they sold in the PX. Howell's beer made by, made by Arrow. Is that right? Mm -hmm. The worst beer I've ever <laughs> <laughs> I guarantee it's the worst. The can would be worth 50 or $60. And I can remember throwing those things out, and this thing is rusty. There's another thing. Collectors don't mind a rust in a can. We, as my wife was saying, my wife and I would go digging, or dumping is called, and we would find cans. And in the state of Virginia, they don't sell beer across the bar, okay? They're sold in gas stations where you take it home. And National and other breweries, and Kruger, which is the first beer can, would send beer down to Virginia because the gas station they could keep a real good inventory on how much beer they sold. And they would tell whether the beer worked or not. Well, the first beer came by Kruger in 34. Nobody has one. I would love that. It would be worth $20,000 at least for the first can. Now, let's get into my favorite thing, which is glasses. And the glasses are a perfect example. Here is a national premium glass with this man on the front of it. Anybody know who his name is? That's Mr. Pilsner. He's very much like this guy, Mr. Bo and Mr. Pilsner. He bought the same group. This is a German style beer, where this is more of a lager. There's a difference between lager and German. Lager, you know the word lager means? It's the store. Who said that? That's right, to store, to lager is to store. And that's why National went up at the top of that hill, because they could dig their caves in there to lager their beer to keep it. I thought you were going to ruin my joke. <laughs> the, great, the greatest beer joke in the world. And if you went to a beer can show or group and you told this joke, people would cry laughing. <laughs> right? Baltimore, at, up on the, the top of the hill, National Brewery, Gunther was across the street. Well, Gunther sold to uh, Hans, 
hymns slogan from the land of Saudi Little Water. Nationals from the land of Pleasant Little. What separated the land of Saudi Little Water from the land of Pleasant Little? O'Donnell Street. <laughs> Come on, honey, people are <laughs> Now, National had a guy named Mr. Bo, who came. It's on your shirt. No, here. Now, look, I, you may not be able to see it. Mr. Bo has a compact, a um, monocle, and what happened, uh, a famous cartoonist made this scene, which I would give anything in my collection for. It's a big, like this, of a house with all of these people in it. And the one guy in it was the guy with the top hat and the monocle. And he later on became Mr. Bell because they monocle, not the top hat, they took that off. So this monocle all of a sudden became no eyes, see? So this is the original Mr. Bell. Here is a later Mr. Bell. Can you all see that it's not the same as the one you know now? Got a little honey eye and all. And then, of course, the other but I'm going to tell you, these are beautiful cans. And this they made banks out of these. He's never had beer out. Anybody tells you to drink out of this, they cut the top off and drink out of this. It is a front with all the cartoons. Now, where is it? Here. I lived in New York in the 60s, and the World's Fair was there. Maryland had a, a stand booth. And this was what they served you the beer. It has a recipe for how to make a crab cake. Anyway, New York then how to help you make a crab cake. This cost 25 cents, and the crab cake 75. One or the other. It was $2 to get a national premium and a crab cake in the world's fair. So you can find these all over the place. Now, Again, you know what the re what the regular national cans look like. What is the difference here? This is the reason national beer failed. This came right here. National beer, racetrack over what's called, and it tells you that they are changing this to this. Now, that's terrible. That's absolutely terrible. Anybody wanted to drink out of a white can like hey, some little bit of percentage. After this, it went down to two. That and another reason. <laughs> the other reason was that National, and this is not a good example, National put cans in, what's that? Boom. What's the biggest employer in the state of Maryland at this time? Bethlehem oh, Steel. They're not going to drink out of an aluminum can. So that was one of the reasons they went down. Let's see. And one of the biggest, their biggest as was the uh, skipjack. I'm drawing a blank. Chester Pete. Chester Pete, you're not mine. Okay? Chester Pete. You called it worse. Oh. Uh, Chester Pete, he was down at Bell's Point for the longest while, and the man we knew that fixed it worked with my wife. Hennessy. Hmm? Hennessy? No, Billy Phillips. Oh. Yeah. 
he bought it later and, and redid it. One of the one of the oldest beer families in Baltimore was Wiesner. And Wiesner was the original uh, brewery on on uh, Life, what what is it? Where the big Pelham Street. Yeah. This yeah. Now, Free State, which I don't have a good example of, Free State went out of business in 1950. I hate to say it, I've never tasted a Free State beer. <laughs> never. I was too young. It's hard to believe. So, the Weister, some guys got together, used the name Weister, and put out and drank brew beer for Weister at the Free State. They lasted two years. It wasn't meant to be. Was there anything Okay. Beautiful. There's the Gunther logo. And you can find this logo without the G. In many of the old, uh, if you go to the thrift stores, they'll have the glass like that. Look for this without the G. I do have a free state. There's their motto. Right now, one of the other things that I can give it up, if you like, if you like, we're in the library now. This is one of the best ones I've ever Without a doubt, it's by Mencken. I'm sorry, by Bud Johnson. It's about Mencken and uh, Hamilton Owens. Mm -hmm. it, one day, if you don't know who Hamilton Owens, look him up. You'll find a guy who really, really was uh, all around, he was an all around man. And I'm going to tell you this story. Oh, the Bible. Huh? The Bible. All right. This is. Brewing in Maryland. It is the worst reading book. There's nobody can read this from It's terrible. But it's the Bible that tells you anything you want to know about brewing in Maryland. My lovely wife, in our first year, bought this at Pelts Point at a famous uh, store called Two Worlds John. If you were from Pelts Point, you would remember Two Worlds John. You know, I always either Gold or crap. And this, he wanted $125 for this. Sherry, I don't know, got him down to 75. She bought another set of first year. So she buys his book, and Christmas she's literally shaking. If she wanted me to say, this is worth, this is priceless. And we've used this many a time. So you ever see this? And if one, Mine is signed by the author. And that's the original. No. Now, so the thing that I collect now for coaches. The reason? They're free. Again, these two pictures here are of that scene that I did anything for where the first was devoted. And these are, and they're national premium with Mr. Pilsner, and there's other kinds of different national products. And I want you to know, there's one thing I also collect, Baltimore, beer, baseball, and paper. What kind of an autograph, but I have a great picture of Babe Ruth and his father. They look like they spit at each other. They look exactly alike. And his father was a mean SOB if there ever was one. He literally worked Abram's mother to death. 
she died. He buried her, he didn't bury her, he, he sent her up to the uh, graveyard on, uh, on the Valera Road and Eurasia and buried her with her father. Her name is not one of on the grave. But they looks exactly like his father. Now his father died in a very strange way. He had a girl that he sort of semi adopted, living with him. She was crazy about this farm, Baltimore farm. What do you think? What, where do you think he came from? Ireland, do you think maybe he came from? Because most of the, the firefighters were Irish. He tries to get fresh with this girl. Babe's father comes out. And he, and Babe's father's a little guy. Hit this big farm, the farm, and hit him back. Babe's father fell down on the curb. Hit his head on the curb and died right there by saving this girl. That's pretty much it. Does anybody have any questions? Yes. Um, I was going to ask for the first speaker. Yeah. This question. Um, was uh, Colt 45 Baltimore, and what's the difference between uh, Maltland and Beer? Well, yes, Colt 45 was Baltimore. It was uh, produced by National, um, and they had a very clever uh, advertising campaign uh, called Completely Unique Experience, in which they had these various actors, like Billy Van, the actor, go through these incredibly difficult uh, uh, maneuvers, such as being in bull ring, and the bull would charge and knock him, knock stuntman over, and then he would come and pour the beer and, and say this was a completely unique experience. And they had Red Fox, who did a great one, um, when they had a, a, a false uh, front of a house fall down, and he said, that's a really new one for you. <laughs> 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 the experience. Was this strong good beer? Yes, it's about 8%. It was about 8% or 8%. And uh, when National um, started it, they first, for a while they had a plant in uh, Phoenix, and they wanted, they needed to get a product on the trucks. I don't know why on the trucks, but anyway, on the trucks that was fit this actual uh, profile. And there was only one other uh, malt liquor maker in the United States, and that was in St. Joseph, Missouri, which Mr. Corby has written about. It's also the home of Point Express, uh, where I grew up. So they figured nobody knows anything about malt liquor. We'll, we'll sell it this way. And they did. They sold it quite successfully. It was very successful in uh, Big Ten fraternity houses. And so the, uh, the team from National went up there to find out what was going on. And they talked to the guys and said, oh yeah, that's LPR. They said, LPR? Liquid pants removal. Fight him, 
which would be a big legal fight. The tent doesn't have the money to do that. So if you see a Mr. Pilsner bottle cap, you better grab it. <laughs> it's not going to be around much longer. Yes? So is Mr. Pilsner a fictional image of the Pilsner beer, or is he actually the person that they describe Pilsner as? Uh, <coughs> Mr. Pilsner is, is the name of the beer that comes from Czechoslovakia, type of a lie that comes from Czechoslovakia. And when they had created the characters, they created Mr. Bull and Mr. Pilsner. Mr. Pilsner always was a little hoity-toity kind of guy, and Mr. Bow became more like the Baltimore guy. So there actually are two distinct characters, and he would probably win. He, the guy bringing back in the Supreme, if they took him to court, but you know, getting to court would take a lot of money. When I lived in New York in the early 60s, around the corner from me was a restaurant called Lou Chow's. For years, I thought it was a Chinese restaurant. <laughs> it was a great German restaurant, fabulous German restaurant. And I would go there for one reason. They had national premium on tap, and it cost 75 cents. Hmm. Or you can get a beer for 15 cents in the place. Yeah. I didn't drink a lot of those because 75 cents for school break. Yeah. Big money, big money. Well, it was when it came out, it was regarded as one of the finest beers in America. It was served in the 21 Club in New York. It was served in the finest bars and uh, restaurants in Chicago and in Los Angeles. And when Jerry Hoffberger got married. He flew out to Los Angeles on a prop plane, and uh, Victor Borga, the entertainer, uh, gave him a party there and arranged to have national premium served there. I got a picture. Here. Yes, sir. Is it true that uh, Babe Ruth's father's bar was located on what now is Camden Yards, uh, the ballpark? Yes, I have a list of the bar. Uh, the street that he he had a number of bars, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just read that Robert Kramer biography of Babe Ruth. Again, it's in the, it's right here in the library. And Mr. Kramer died this year. It's really quite good. And it's um, as as Turkey said, you know, this guy, his father was quite quite a ruffian. And of course, Babe was quite a ruffian too. When he would go out to St. Mary's, it was basically an industrial school, and they teach you how to have a craft, and then they send you out sort of as an apprentice, and if you things went well, you know, you would not have to go back to school. They kept coming back, kept coming back. <laughs> they say, what happened? Oh, fighting, drinking. <laughs> this is a national bone bottle with a very famous man drinking it. He worked for WFDR. He was a Navy guy who played the ukulele. Later on, he was the only person that had three number one shows Two, one on radio, or two on radio, and one on Arthur Godfrey. Who? Now Arthur Godfrey. Arthur Godfrey. So, well, can you imagine him? I bet you he drank a many of them. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Any other questions? Yes, sir. No, I just have something. I always question. You ever go up Charles Street and cross 83, and you see a big billboard, mm -hmm. Natty Bo, that's girl. Yeah. You think he's a pedophile? <laughs> 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 no comment. <laughs> no comment. You have to tell me, Mike. <laughs> well, thank you very much. And Judy, are we signing in the back? <laughs> Judy, are we signing in the back? Um. Yeah. Let me see. Yeah. We'd like for everybody to come up. Here.